0: Scandalous. Do you know what's even more scandalous than Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion? Even more scandalous than God's redemption of Judah and his sin with Tamar. You can check that out in week two of the series. More scandalous than God's love for adulterous Israel. And even more scandalous than the fact that maybe God has a tattoo with the names of Israel in his hand. I think the most scandalous thing about God's grace is his trust in unworthy people like me and you to be to be the agents of his grace in a world he loves. God trusts you and me to share that grace with everyone around us. That's scandalous because we know our own hearts, we know what's going on inside of us, and we know our shortcomings. And yet God says, I trust you to show grace to a community and a world that needs it. As we've walked through this series on God's scandalous grace, I hope you've been challenged. Not simply challenged to understand how God views us, but challenged to investigate and study and learn even more about God's grace. Because if I'm honest, it would be really easy as a teaching team here at Great Oaks to stand up and just tell you exactly what you should believe and do every week. How you should act and then place guilt on you if you don't do those things. But if we were to do that, your faith would not be your own. You'd simply be puppeting the faith and beliefs of the pastor who's preaching that day and your foundation would shift with the tides of that, with that pastor and there would be no solid foundation, no anchor to hold your faith with. In truth, if we did that, Each of our faiths would be nothing more than that of a faith of a kindergartner. Because parents look at kindergartners and say, hey, I want you to do this. Why? Because I said so. And so as a teaching team here at Great Oaks, our heart and my heart as your lead pastor is to help you mature in faith by thinking, investigating, and wrestling with all of the nuances of what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. Our teaching team wants to pastor a church like the one found in Acts chapter 17 verse 11, when it says this, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly. To Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. I hope as we've looked at God's grace and we've talked about this scandalous idea and maybe kind of reshaped the way you look at the Old Testament, you've done just that. You've gone and investigated scripture to be like, he's right. Mm, this is weird. Like, how are you understanding those things? We value unending development. And that means I don't want to tell you in black and white terms how to live your life. But I want to help each and every one of us learn to love Jesus and our neighbor in unique ways as we wrestle with the truth of Scripture and its application in 2024. Because the, belie- the results of that kind of faith will be deeper, more holistic, and they will change our lives in much more radical ways than just doing what someone tells us to. I think we know that, but we forget that. And so if you're new here this morning and you're like, well, this is an interesting intro, thank you for coming. And I hope as you figure out who Jesus is, my prayer is that this morning, you'll experience something that will create in you a desire to investigate and discover more of who Jesus is and who this God is who loves you. Because one of the ways we're passionate about doing ministry is discovering Jesus in worship. And that's each and every one of us discovering something new about who Jesus is and the way we live and result in response to that. And I think that's exactly what Paul is teaching the church in Philippi. So if you've got your phones or your Bibles and want to go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that's where we're going to camp out this morning. And Paul says there, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. i are going to stop right there. What exactly does Paul mean when he tells the Philippian church to work out their salvation? Right? We've been talking about grace for the last four weeks. Isn't grace God's gift? He gives it freely to unworthy people. Why do I have to work at it? That seems counterintuitive. Paul's point here is not that we work to earn God's grace, but that we work to figure out what it means to live in light of the grace we've received. And Paul says the most amazing thing about this grace is not just that it calls us and saves us and redeems us, but that it empowers us and gives us will and desire to obey what God has asked us to do. So God's doing all the work. He's calling us. He's empowering us. He's giving us the desire inside of us. It's what happens when we live in connection with Jesus and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we work through this idea this morning, I want you to keep this phrase in the front of your minds. Grace brings life change every day. Grace brings life change Every day. Now there's nothing super deep or philosophical about that statement, but are we applying it? Is God's grace changing our lives every day? You see, because the scandal of God's grace is not that it saves, but that enables us to obey and to live differently every day as a result of this. Author Preston Sprinkle says this: obedience is not grace's enemy. But it's byproduct. I think often we think about grace and over here and obedience over here, and God's grace saved me, but now I've got to obey, and that's what keeps me saved, and that's how this works. And Springle says, "No, no, 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 no. Our obedience is a byproduct or a result of God's grace in our lives. But it should lead to change. Go back with me for a minute to week one of our series when we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer. You might remember, but Dahmer's life up to the point of his conversion was dark, tortured, and demented. He took 17 innocent lives. Yet God's grace invaded that dark cell and brought life change to Dahmer that many thought was impossible. And unfortunately, some inside the church still do. But here are two things that I know about God's grace based on the truth of Scripture. One, God's grace is available to everyone no matter what, and it's free. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted God's grace or you're like, I don't even know exactly what this concept is. It's the idea that God loves you and will always love you no matter what you've done. You can't do anything to make God love you more today than he did yesterday or to love you less. God loves you. And that grace, that forgiveness that leads to grace is free All we have to do is believe. But the second thing about God's grace is this God's grace empowers us to lead changed lives. If we've accepted God's grace and we've said, Yes, I believe that grace is for me, I believe that you love me, how's it changing the way we live? You see, unfortunately, in our case study of Jeffrey Dahmer, his life was cut short. So we never got to see the change that God's grace would have made in his life. However, in his words to the Philippians, Paul is reminding them that grace in real life looks like obedience. To all he's taught them and to everything Jesus taught his disciples. So I think grace in real life is humility grace in real life is humility. Paul kicks off this section of Philippians that we read with the word therefore. And if you have done any biblical study, you know anytime that you see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask ourselves the question, What's it there for, right? Like this, it's not super hard. You just read the word and then you just put a different pause in it. So, right. So what's it there for? What's it teaching? And most of the time in scripture, when it's there, we can look back and it's referring to the thing that was previously taught. And so Paul's saying, in light of what I've taught you earlier in Philippians chapter two, I want you to do these things. So what Paul says previously in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8 is this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And this is that attitude. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The God who shows you and I grace that we could never deserve that we could never earn, not only modeled and offered grace, but modeled for us obedience and humility. Imagine, the God who gave us the gift of grace in creation stepped out of heaven, out of his throne room, and came and lived among us. He came to serve. He came to interact with those who were social outcasts. He came to die an undeserved death on a cross for you and for me. Paul says if we want to work out our salvation, if we want to live grace in real life, we have to learn to be humble. When was the last time you put the needs and wants of someone outside your family above your own? When was the last time you gave time and money to a cause that could never pay you back? We actually have a fantastic example of this in our community right now. Maybe you've seen it on Facebook or heard about it but there, through conversation, but there's an event called Pulling Together for the Polinos. And this is an event in which is being hosted and organized, will be hosted here and being organized by people who attend Great Oaks. But what I want you to know about that is this is an event that's required a lot of effort, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of planning for no reward for those folks who are planning it. It's an opportunity to humbly serve people who are in incredible need because of loss and struggle in our community. That's what grace in real life looks like. It looks like humbly serving those who can't pay us back. Giving to those who can't give back. Because we understand the grace we've received from Jesus. So if you want more information about that, I think there's some details out by the coffee this morning. What could or what opportunities has God put in front of us to live more humbly? by placing the needs of others above our own. Grace brings life change every day in small and big acts of humility. But grace in real life isn't just humility, it's also unity. I want us to pull back to Philippians chapter two, but if we look a little bit further back into Philippians chapter one and a little forward of where we were, in Philippians chapter 2, we see that Paul's main concern for the followers of Jesus is that they're united. I want you to listen to Philippians 1.27, then I'm going to skip way forward to 2.14. And Paul says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a worthy manner of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose Fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And then in chapter 2, do everything without complaining or arguing. If we're honest, following Jesus right now in this world is hard. Depending on where you stand on any given topic, you're going to get attacked sometimes by those inside the church and those outside, sometimes from just one or the other. But we live in a culture that, if we're honest, would rather cancel things that disagree with us than engage in conversation. And I, I'm afraid, church, that that same mindset has infiltrated the church. That instead of listening to learn, we simply just disagree in part ways. And I can't help but wonder if each of us showed a little humility, held a little less tightly to our non-essential beliefs, and began to fight for unity if we wouldn't be spiritually, emotionally, and relationally healthier than we are today. Unfortunately, I think we'd rather argue than listen. Paul's prayer for this church is that they would stand together and fight for the faith. He didn't want them to fight for political power, for social influence, for personal agendas. He wanted them to unite around God's passionate desire to show love to his enemies. He prays for unity and instructs them to stop arguing and complaining. He wants them to do this so the light of the gospel can shine brightly in them. How bright is the light of the gospel shining in our lives as individuals and as a community of faith? How united are we? How would it affect our witness if right here in Great Oaks, we began to live with one purpose, united to tell the gospel message to our community? We know our mission, right? Connecting everyone with Jesus, community and purpose. Can we unite around that mission? Can we agree that we will do everything in our power to connect everyone to the one true God who has scandalous grace to offer them? Everyone means your annoying coworker. Everyone means your crazy uncle. Everyone means your annoying neighbor who puts way too many political signs in their front yard. Everyone means people who cheer for the Washington Panthers. I'm sorry, Washington community. We love you and we're so glad you're here, right? You can, you can hate the Redbirds and it's okay. You're still welcome. It's a non-essential belief. Everyone means that person who broke your trust. Are we committed and united to connecting everyone with Jesus, to providing a place so that everyone can experience community? And do we believe that God has a purpose for everyone? That's Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, that's Paul's desire. And I think that's what grace looks like lived out in real life. And lastly, grace in real life looks like love. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. What's Jesus' command? Well, the two greatest things are love God with heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment is love. I know some of you are like, man, this guy only talks about love. It's all over the New Testament. I can't help it. I'm just reading the text. What's it look like to love a God we can't see? What's it look like to love a God we can't touch? What's it look like to love a God who has everything and is self-sufficient? I think it looks like spending time with him. I think it looks like opening up his word and reading it because this is the way he has chosen to reveal himself to us. So we get to understand who God is each time we open up this book and we read from it. We get to love God every time we talk to him, right? If you're married in here, how's it go if you just choose not to talk to your spouse for like three weeks? Probably not very well. I mean, some of... Some of you might be like, I'll take that. You don't really want that. I get it. But God says, I want you to come and spend time. I want you to know who I am. And I want to hear what's on your heart. And I want to know what's going on in your life. And the last way we love God, I think, is by obeying the second commandment. We love our neighbor. He says, love your neighbor. That's how you love me. You love the person I put in front of you. You show them the love that I've given you. This is not convenient, it's not easy. I had a realization a couple of months ago. The realization was, if it didn't have Great Oaks name on it, I wasn't doing a whole lot to serve my community. And what that means is, when I could get paid for serving, I'd go do it. But when it was on my time, maybe I didn't take that opportunity. And the Holy Spirit began to convict me about that. And so I got the opportunity through Rotary to go and serve at a food bank in Spring Bay at Rivers Edge United Methodist Church. So in December, the boys were out of school. We went and we served. Two hours on Friday morning, that's my day off. And if it's up to Jason and Jason's will, I might not serve for two hours on Friday morning, but if it's about living grace in real life and surrendering to the will of the Holy Spirit and understanding God's empowered me for that, I get to go for two hours once a month and love our community. For to the best of my knowledge, nobody actually knows who I am other than bald Jason. And that's all I want them to know because I get to show up and show the love of Christ to people who are hurting and people who need it. Paul says this in Romans, owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of the law. It's not about me, it's not about you. God's grace working every day in our lives humbles us, unites us, and loves shows, loves us and shows love to those around us. Church, we don't produce these things on our own. Paul says this is empowered by the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wanna point out one thing to you real quick in that verse. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, singular. And then Paul lists nine fruit. I think the best way to interpret this verse is the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of love shown by our patience, our joy, our peace, our kindness, our goodness, our faithfulness, our gentleness, and our self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Whenever you see that in your life, that's the Spirit working through you. That's God every day working to make you become more like Jesus because the truth is we're never going to reach perfection in this life. We're still going to mess it up. But grace brings life change every day. And that means every day we get to be a little bit closer to Jesus than we were before. It's absolutely scandalous that God trusts you and I with this message. But he saved us, equipped us, and empowered us to go and show grace to everyone we meet. We don't do this to earn God's grace. We do this in response to God's grace. We get the opportunity because God has shown us grace to go and live in gratitude and show grace to others. We get to live our lives as thank you notes back to God for what he's done for us. And so as we close this morning, I have a couple of questions for you to think about. Who do you know who needs to hear the message of God's grace for them? Maybe somebody who doesn't believe they're capable of having grace, that they don't deserve it, that there's no way God could love them. How do we need to be that agent that goes and shows them love when they don't deserve it? Who do you need to ask forgiveness for? Because you obeyed your will and not the fruit of the spirit and you need to go back and say, hey, I'm sorry. What I said was rude or disrespectful or hurtful. And that's not who I want to be. And lastly, where is God calling you to love your neighbor? Two basic commands. Love God, love people. Who's God calling you to love? How is he calling you to love them? Where do you need to go? This is the scandal of grace. Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. God, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We take advantage of it every day. And God, you never give up on us. You always love us. God, thank you. God, we ask that you would give us the strength to model that same grace to those around us. That every day, we strive to live out that grace to those who need it. Give us the strength. Give us the trust to rely on the Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.